0: Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, The Doctrine of the Trinity, part six. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. Last time we were together, we talked about the Lagos Christology of the early Greek apologists. And this doctrine was taken up into Western theology through uh, the church father Irenaeus. During the following century, the third century, a very different conception of the divine personages emerged in contrast to the Lagos doctrine of the Greek apologists. People such as uh, Noetus, Praxius, and Sibelius enunciated a quite different view of God, a Unitarian view of God. Which goes under various names—modalism, or monarchianism, or Sabellianism. According to this view, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not distinct persons. There is only one person who is God, and either it was the Father Himself who became incarnate and suffered and died on the cross. The Son was at most the human side of the Father, so to speak, the human face of God the Father. Or else, alternatively, the one God sequentially assumed three roles in his relationship to humanity – first the Father, then the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. One of the finest treatises um, written against this early modalism is by the uh, North African Church Father Tertullian, who wrote a treatise called *Against Praxius*, a refutation of the views of Praxius, and this is very much worth reading today. If you want to read a treatise by one of the early Church Fathers. I think this is the one that I would probably recommend. Tertullian's Against Praxius is a brilliant um, piece of work and extremely influential. In his treatise, um, Tertullian brought greater precision to many of the ideas uh, and also introduced much of the terminology that would later uh, be adopted in the creedal formulations of the doctrine of the Trinity. Indeed, the word Trinitas or Trinity stems from Tertullian. Now, Tertullian was very anxious to preserve what was called the divine monarchy which was a word used by the early Greek apologists for monotheism. To speak of the uh, monarchy of God was to speak of the only true God, the one God, monotheism. But while he wanted to insist upon the truth of the monarchy, Tertullian also wanted to emphasize what he called the divine economy, a word which he borrowed from Irenaeus. and The word economy in reference to God seems to have reference to the way in which the one God exists. There is one God, but he doesn't exist just as one person. As the monarchians or the modalists thought. He says that the error of the monarchians was, and I quote, thinking that one cannot believe in one only God in any other way than by saying that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the very self same person, end quote. But Tertullian thinks that while all are one by unity of substance, he goes on to say and i quote the mystery of the economy distributes the unity into a trinity placing in their order the three persons the father the son and the holy spirit three however not in condition but in degree not in substance but in form not in power but in aspect, yet of one substance, and of one condition, and of one power, inasmuch as he is one God, from whom these degrees and forms and aspects are reckoned under the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So, On Tertullian's view there is one God, one substance that God is. But then this is distributed into this economy of three persons, each of whom is God. Now, when Tertullian says that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all one substance, he's using the word substance in both of the senses that the Greek philosopher Aristotle employed that term. On the one hand, according to Aristotle, a substance is just any individual thing. Any thing that exists is a substance. So, this table is a substance. I am a substance. Uh, the chair is a substance. The plant is a substance. They're just individual things. Um, and he would say there is one thing, which is God. There are not three gods, these three persons are one thing. Uh, namely, God. But the other sense in which Aristotle used the word substance was to designate the essence of a thing or its very nature. So that to talk about substance in this sense was to talk about those properties that go to make a thing what it is. So, for example, a chair has a different essence or nature than a table does or than a horse does they have different natures or different essences, and that's why they are different things because they have different essential properties and so um, Tertullian wants to affirm that the three persons also share the same essential divine nature. They are one thing, God, but they also share the same nature in Responding to the proof text that the monarchians often use, John 10:30, I and my father are one, Tertullian points out that the fact that you have here a plural subject, I and my father, and a plural verb, are, indicate that there are two entities, namely two persons. But he says the predicate here, uh, one, Is an abstract, not a personal noun. In Latin, uh, it is the word, he says, unum, not unus. Not a personal pronoun, but um, an abstract pronoun. I and my father are one, unum. And he comments, unum, a neuter term, does not imply singularity of number, but unity of essence, likeness, conjunction affection on the father's part and submission on the son's. When he says, I and my father are one, in essence unum, he shows that there are two whom he puts on an equality and unites in one. So, In the proof text, I and my father are one, you have a multiplicity of persons, two distinct persons, But a unity of essence. I and my father are one, not one person, but one uh, in essence. They have the same nature. So when Tertullian says that the monarchy is distributed into uh, the economy in three forms or aspects, he's not affirming modalism. But rather, what he's saying is that the diversity of the persons. All share the same nature. They are one substance, one thing having one nature. Now, it's become conventional wisdom today to say that when these church fathers, like Tertullian, um, said that God is three persons, they didn't mean this in the modern psychological sense of a person as someone who is a center of self-consciousness – I. Um, Rather they just meant to say there are three individuals uh, but not three persons in this psychological sense. But I think when you read Tertullian himself um, what you'll find is that that claim is, uh, shall we say, greatly exaggerated. Uh, It seems to me that Tertullian does think Of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as three self-conscious persons. For example, in a remarkable passage which is aimed at illustrating the doctrine of the Son as the uh, imminent logos in the Father's mind – remember that was what the Greek apologists believed, that the logos was originally imminent within the Father as the Father's reason or mind – And To illustrate this, Tertullian invites the reader, uh, who he says is created in the image and likeness of God and so is in that sense like God, to think about the role of reason in the reader's own self-reflective thinking. He says, Observe then that when you are silently conversing with yourself, this very process is carried on within you by your reason which meets you with a word at every movement of your thought, at every impulse of your conception. Tertullian is thinking here of your own reason as a kind of dialogue partner um, that you engage with in self-reflective thought. And I think probably every one of us has had that experience of sort of talking to himself uh, where you're sort of engaged in this uh, self-reflective uh, conversation with yourself. And Tertullian says that um, when we do that, this reason within you meets you as a sort of self uh, conscious person. He says, in a certain sense, the word is a second person within you through which you generate thought. Now, of course Tertullian realizes that no human being is literally two persons but he says when you carry on this conversation with yourself it is sort of like two persons within you and he says when it comes to God this is much more fully transacted in God because God contains his imminent logos even when he is not speaking when he is when he is silent Or again, when Tertullian wants to prove that the Father and the Son are personally distinct from each other, he quotes uh, passages from the scriptures uh, in which the Father and the Son use first person and second person pronouns in dialogue with each other. So, for example, he quotes Psalm 110 uh, and verse 3. Where God says, Thou art my beloved Son. Today I have begotten Thee. And quoting this verse, Tertullian says to the modalist, and I quote, If you want me to believe Him to be both the Father and the Son, show me some other passage where it is declared, The Lord said unto Himself, I am my own Son. Today I have begotten myself. And of course, there is no such passage. He quotes numerous passages, which, through the use of these uh, personal pronouns, shows the I Thou relationship in which the Father and the Son stand to each other, an I You relationship. Each one uses the appropriate first-person pronouns in talking to the other as a uh, as a person. He challenges the modalist to explain how a being who is absolutely one and singular can use first person plural pronouns like let us make man in our image. So, I think very clearly Tertullian thinks of the father, the son and the holy spirit as well as capable of using um, personal pronouns by means of self-reference and addressing each other using second-person pronouns "you," um, which shows that they are self-conscious persons. So Tertullian concludes, and I quote: "In these few quotations, the distinction of persons in the Trinity is clearly set forth." End quote. So. I think it is very difficult to avoid the conclusion that Tertullian um, does believe that the persons of the Trinity are three distinct self-conscious individuals. Now, The only qualification that might be made to this picture uh, lies in a vestige of the apologist's old logos doctrine in Tertullian's theology. He not only accepts their view um, that there are relations of derivation between the persons of the Trinity, that the Son, for example, is begotten from the Father, but he also holds to the view that these relations are not eternal. Um, he calls the Father the fountain of the Godhead. He says the Father is the entire substance, but the Son is a derivation and portion of the whole. End quote. The Father, he says, exists eternally um, with the Logos imminent within his mind. But then at the moment of creation the Logos proceeds from the Father and becomes his only begotten Son uh, through whom then the world is created. So the Logos becomes the Son of God only when he first proceeds from the Father as a substantive being. Tertullian is very fond of using analogies like the sunbeam emitted by the sun or the river that flows out of the spring to show the oneness of the Son with The Father from whom he proceeds. But he didn't think of this procession as eternal, as um, later theologians were to do. He thinks of this as something that starts at the moment of creation. So the Son, on his view, is, and I quote, God of God. A phrase that will later be incorporated in the Nicene Creed. He is God of God. And similarly, then the Holy Spirit also proceeds from the Father through the Son. So if I understand him right, it would seem that the, the Tertullian would consider the Son and the Spirit to be distinct persons only after their procession from the Father. Before that, before as it were, before the moment of creation. They are merely imminent within the Father. He is the fountainhead from which they flow, um, but um, they are not at that point personally distinct. Nevertheless, once the Logos proceeds from the Father and the Spirit from the Father and the Son, they clearly are then distinct persons um, from that point on. Now, Through the efforts of church fathers like Tertullian, uh, Oregon, um, Novatian, and many others, the church came to reject modalism as a proper understanding of God and to affirm that there are three distinct persons within the Godhead who are called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. During the following century then, the church would be confronted with Uh, a challenge from the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, Arianism, which uh, affirmed the personal distinction of the Father and the Son but denied the deity of the Son. As we will see, whereas the modalists affirmed that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all God but not distinct persons, Arius Affirmed that the Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct persons, but they are not all God. Only the Father is God, and the Son is, in fact, a creature uh, who was made by God. Now, are there any questions or discussion about modalism then? Um, and we'll get a microphone to you so that we can um, hear your question. Yes. Uh, doc- Dr. Craig, this is a topic that I spend a lot of time reflecting on, um, and sometimes the response that I get because I write about this topic, and uh, the response that I get from people is that uh, it's just kind of theological nitpicking because it's you're either God is either three manifestations or three persons, and it doesn't really matter. They believe Jesus is God anyway. So, how would you respond to that? Is this uh, do you regard this as a very important uh, central, the Trinity versus modalism? Yeah. It's important to understand that the modalists at least did affirm the deity of Christ, unlike Arius. It does seem to me that Arius's error is more serious because on his view the Son is just a creature which is, uh, would make worship of him idolatrous. With regard to modalism, I think there that it, it simply can't do justice to the teaching of Scripture. They would have to say that it's the Father. Who became incarnate and suffered and died on the cross. And that's clearly not right because Jesus, during his um, lifetime, um, is able to pray to and depend on the Father. He's guided by the Holy Spirit. So, modalism, it seems to me, just can't do uh, justice to the biblical text, which shows that these persons are uh, three distinct members of the Godhead and that we we shouldn't uh, confuse them with each other by thinking that the Father died on the cross. Keeping the persons of the Trinity straight, I think, will have practical importance for our devotional life, our Christian life. For example, Jesus taught us to pray to the Father in the name of the Son and then through the power of the Holy Spirit. And by, by keeping these persons at the Trinity straight, it can help us to order our devotional lives, I think, in a proper way, um, for example, in, in prayer. Uh, thank you. Yeah, so I was just wondering, how did the modalists of the day, how did they exegete passages like where Jesus is praying to the Father, or when it's very clear, at least to me, that they're distinct persons, like how did they, how did they exegete those? It seems that the best they could do would be to say that In the incarnation Christ had a human side or a human nature or aspect and that it's the human nature or aspect that is praying to the divine nature or aspect. So he really is talking to himself in these prayers, but they would try to make sense of it by saying it's the human side talking to the divine side. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense to me, unless they're no. two different persons. <laughs> I'm just trying to answer how they God. would say it, but I think you're quite right. It's it's a, a completely <laughs> inadequate answer to deal with the prayer life of Jesus, for example, when he says to the Father, not my will, but thine be done, and so forth. James? I just had a question about these, these heresies here that we're going over, because um, I understand modalism to be a different heresy from monarchianism. Is that that correct or not? Uh, Not as in my understanding. um, My understanding is that these are both Unitarian views of God. They might have different explanations of how it is that God appears to be three. Remember I said they might say that Jesus is the sort of human nature of God. Or they might say, "No, this is God playing three sequential roles." So you could have different accounts of how the appearance of threeness arises, but they would be one in their fundamental conviction that God is one person, and that the appearance of threeness is just that—it's it's it's merely an appearance; it's not real. Okay, I I guess. When when I think of monarchianism, um, I, I was thinking more along the lines of um, that whoever came up with a heresy saw the Trinity as as all is of all the same substance. However, that there is a subordination in the Trinity, a subordination of the Son to the Father, and then the Spirit to both of them. Yeah, so, now that's not my okay. understanding of monarchianism. In one sense, I mean that sounds almost orthodox because in the orthodox view you have this notion of the Son being begotten from the Father. The Father is the sort of fountainhead from which the Son proceeds. He he exists because of the Father and then the Spirit from the Father and the Son. There is that kind of dependence. Now, you're right. You don't want to say it's Subordination in the sense of inferiority, because they affirm that they all have the same nature. But there is a kind of dependence, and whether or not that's an acceptable subordination, I think is a matter of real debate. Okay. I, I would just say that in the economy of redemption there is subordination, but I agree. But that's But that's different than what we're talking about. Right, it is. Now, what James is talking about there is the difference between what's sometimes called the ontological trinity and the economic trinity. The ontological trinity would be the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as they are in themselves, God in Himself. And there, there is no subordination in the sense of inferiority or subordination of one person to another. But in the economic trinity, this is how the trinity engages humanity for the plan of salvation. And there, there is subordination because the, the Son submits to and does the Father's will. And the Holy Spirit does not glorify Himself, He glorifies the Son and speaks uh, whatever has been told to Him to be said. So, there in the, the economic trinity, you have a kind of subordination but it's not ontological. It would be the sort of subordination that you would have in a marriage relationship where the wife and the husband are equal before God, but for the economy of the family, the wife submits to the loving leadership of her husband. And that doesn't imply her inferiority in any way. It's a purely economic sort of submission. Yes, down here. Uh, Dr. this just popped in my mind. they would say that there's no distinction of persons, right? Like like it's all one substance, but there's no distinction of persons. Yeah. How would that translate into the fact that all humans bear God's image, even though we all share the same nature, but we're all not the same person. Obviously there are multiplicity of human persons around, but we all share the same, well, we all share one thing in common, that is our humanity. We all have the yeah. same Imago Day, but we're all, there's a diversity of persons nevertheless. Like how would they go about explaining, well, how's the Imago Day? Okay. Expressed. The idea there would be that human beings have the same nature. Aristotle said the nature of humanity is to be a rational animal. We have a, a biological body, but a rational soul. And when we have three instances of that nature, you have three different individuals. So we have Adam and John and George. And those all those each have the same fundamental human nature, but each one exemplifies that nature, um, or instantiates that nature as as an individual man. Uh, and we'll see that that actually becomes very important in these Trinitarian debates over Arianism. Um, so I don't think that's a problem for the Unitarian. The Unitarian would say that. God is one person, and each one of us is one person, and in that sense, we are like God. we are made in His likeness and image. Uh, we are each one person. And what the Trinitarian would say is that we do not share God's nature insofar as the fact each of us is one person and not three persons. Okay, was there another? Question: Yes. Uh, yes. Just following up on Cody's question, I was also curious about how the modalist deals with Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit when He says, "I'm leaving, but I'll send the Comforter in my place." You know, how do they deal with that when it's <laughs> supposed to be another right I know it's hard. To uh, I an mean, here part. would be here 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 could be yeah. what they would say is yeah. that Jesus says, "All right, uh, the Holy Spirit is going to come after I leave," and so He exits the room. You know, changes clothes yeah. and comes back in as the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And so it's really just role playing. It, it's masquerade, really. Where it gets difficult is when you have the three persons, at th- or the two persons at least, well, yeah, you have all three at the same time. Like at the baptism of Jesus, where the Father says, This is my beloved Son. With whom I am well pleased, and the Spirit descends upon the Son in the form of a dove. That's where it's difficult for the modalist to say these are three sequential roles played by um, the one person because they're all there interacting with each other at the same time. All right, well, we will now uh, draw it to a close, and uh, next week we will uh, look at the challenge that the church faced in Arianism and how this led to uh, the Council of Nicaea and the codification of the doctrine of the Trinity. Let's close now with a benediction. And now may the Holy Spirit fill you and guide you throughout this week so that you might do all the will of our God and Father to the glory of his Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. The copyright for the content of this recording is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.